Well, gentlemen, it's good to be with you again. Likewise. This is always fun. I really look forward to this, mm. by the way. Yeah. Same. We've got a lot of people um, who've been listening. I've gotten a lot of feedback. Uh, by a lot, I mean, I mean, not that many. Like, it doesn't matter how big. <laughs> you like, excited. You don't like, get that right. many people reaching out. Yeah. But I've had, a like, um, just in the last week, um, two specific... Uh, one online, one uh, in-person interaction sticks out uh, of people that were like, hey, I really like that you're doing this. Great. Uh, yeah, so okay. um, there's definitely people that are interested, listening, benefiting from it. Sweet. Uh, I know I said I won't often talk to the, the audience of this, but um, if you are listening to this, if this recording comes through and it doesn't sound horrible, uh, you can still get the book. We're only on chapter three, chapter three this week. And so um, remember, it's Covenants Made Simple by John T. Rhodes. There's always a link in the podcast notes so you can um, check it out that way. But uh, you can still get it and read along with us because it's going to be a while till we're done mm-hmm. when we take yeah, it at this rate. I haven't even looked ahead. At least 11. Yeah, so oh, we've got... Say that, 11. I mean, we've got a, a while left. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, yeah. Well, should we just jump right in? Let's do it. Covenant conflict. Conflict. Uh, you know, it was interesting. I read this uh, a couple days ago, but my sermon this last Sunday, before I read this, um, actually tied in a lot to the idea of this conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Mm-hmm. And um, so I had that on my mind already. So it's, it was interesting to jump in here. What? Does somebody want to give like a... I don't know, like an overview? Like, what's the theme? So it's called Covenant Conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the focus or theme? Yeah, part of this chapter focuses on the Noahic Covenant and um, John John T. Rhodes, three, no, just kidding, uh, John T. Rhodes, uh, really focuses on, um, he calls it common grace versus saving grace. And of course, in common grace, he breaks it down into two Ps. Um, he says, yeah, one of the huge blessings that come that we see, especially in the Noahic Covenant, is this promise for division, which is a really good thing for us, uh, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Or uh, he uses the term offspring and clarifies, is is this singular, is this plural, is this multiple offspring, is this one particular? And he's like, hey, actually, it's probably a little bit of both. Uh, And so, of course, we see this most fully in the Christ uh, and and Satan himself, but also the very, very many um, offspring beside that. And so, um, yeah, I think the... The pivot from last chapter to this chapter is, yeah, just the, the really, really good news that even though uh, Adam and Eve publicly allied themselves to Satan, like blatantly, and God would have been well within his right um, to have struck them down then and just started from scratch, um, God gave them common grace and decided to put a wedge between them and between the serpent, um, which is great for us. Thank, you, thank God that he is gracious. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I, I'll say this just because I preached it on Sunday. <laughs> and so, it's again, it's yeah. on my mind. Uh, but although um, this was a massive fall, the whole human race fell in mm-hmm. Adam uh, and in his sin. As soon as God gives the judgment, the curse on the man in Genesis three nineteen, 19, mm-hmm. um, or ends the curse, you know, there's more than just that verse, but... Um, we're told this. It says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Right from the start, that is 
Yeah. That's the, I mean, this is like Adam repents. Mm-hmm. He believes the promise of God. Um, so he repents in that he, he calls his wife, he names his wife again. Mm-hmm. This is something that, you know, we talked about the creation order being reversed mm-hmm. in the serpent coming to Eve, then Eve bringing uh, the, the fruit to Adam. Um, so the creation order is reversed, yeah. uh, but Adam takes up his proper authority again. So in that way, he repents, right? He he uh, does he does right again. Mm-hmm. Um, he turns around from what he was doing, um, and he names his wife life giver. He names his wife the mother of all living. Right after God has just said, "You're going to return to dust. You're going to die." So in other words, he believes the promise of life mm-hmm. that is given in the curse of the serpent that there's going to be one that comes and destroys this one that uh, has brought death. And then the Lord forgives them, right? He, he covers them in animal skins. They're, you know, um, I said on Sunday, like you could say, and then it was counted to him as righteousness, right? Sure. Because he, he yep. believes God. And then God clothes them in animal skins, in sacrifice. So, um, so right from the start, you have this note of, of just, I mean, uh, hope of grace, of the, of the grace of God. And so um, going then into this war between the serpent uh, and the offspring of the woman, um, there is, I think, they should have a note of hope, even though it's going to be dark. It's going to get dark. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting on page 43 where he talks about the ambiguity with Mm -hmm. the singular or plural of offspring. Um, he says here on the bottom of 43, it's the same with the Hebrew word. So he made the, he made the comparison with the English word sheep. So we say sheep for one sheep or sheep for a, a multitude of sheep. And he says it's the same thing with the Hebrew word that's translated offspring. It can refer to either one or a group of descendants. And in the light of the rest of the Bible's teachings, it seems that this ambiguity, or better still, double meaning is deliberate. Mm-hmm. So obviously we know throughout you know, reading through the rest of the Bible, there is obviously that conflict between the seed of the women, those who are righteous, and the seed of Satan, those who are of their father, the devil, like Jesus talks about the Pharisees being. And yeah. um, we see that conflict throughout the whole Bible, obviously even to our own day. Um, but it also reminds me of uh, Galatians 3.16, where Paul goes back and talks about the promise given to Abraham um, uh, in well, the promise was given in Genesis twelve seven. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then Paul talks about that in Galatians three sixteen. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. Mm-hmm. And to your offspring, who is the Christ. So, like, like uh, Jaunty said here, um, you know, Obviously, Paul is uh, kind of expositing Genesis twelve seven, but then Jonty says that this word in um, Genesis three fifteen, offspring can be either multitude or one. So we we also see kind of that pointing to Christ, right? Um, I mean, obviously Genesis Genesis three fifteen is the you know what do they call it the Proto Evangelion, the, mm-hmm. the first proclamation of the gospel that yeah. you know the seed of the woman. Um, would crush the serpent's head, and uh, yeah, I just I find I find that interesting. And like and Paul builds on that in Galatians, and obviously we know 
the promise was made to Christ, but then all who are in Christ benefit from that promise. Again, covenantal head, right? Right. We're talking about we were in Adam, we were under covenant with Adam, and then then we came into covenant with Christ, we died to our old nature, and now we're alive in Christ and in covenant with him. So mm-hmm. he's our representative. Yeah. Yeah, he gets into this um, this battle in a sense and talks mm-hmm. about you know, this is a section he calls Satan's kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> um, and uh, I think it's uh, interesting that he points out um, that you know um, Satan is uh, an assassin yeah. of a type, and hit those who come after him follow him. Right, so this is true of Cain, for instance. Right, <laughs> Cain is is. Uh, the you know first in this line of the devil in a sense, mm-hmm. where um, you have him giving way to sin, falling to temptation, and so murdering his brother um, out of anger and out of of envy. But um, he points out that you know Satan doesn't just you know kill. It's not actually like um, Satan kills in the way that we think, right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't just um, overpower and destroy somebody's life physically. Yeah. Um, as much as Satan kills, he says with his tongue. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus tells us that Satan murders and lies. Um, not just that Satan murders and lies, but that he murders by mm-hmm. lies. Yeah. And I think this is really important uh, when you think about this uh, battle, the battle line between God's people and those who are of the world. Um, there's a, especially when we're talking about Satan and spiritual warfare and those sorts of things, there's this desire a lot of times to make it this like, really visible overt um, like this conflict is you know uh, somebody coming to persecute us with swords kind of a thing and generally speaking it's actually not that historically you know that happens at times right it's not to say that again Satan doesn't work through people like a cane who kills righteous Abel or through the Pharisees who you know uh, with the aid of the Romans have Christ crucified so that happens however um all of it begins with lies, with, like with Eve, he tempts her, right? Um, like with Christ, he tries to tempt him in the wilderness. Yeah. And so really what we should understand or see, I think, is that um, when we're talking about this war between these two different offspring, these two different seeds, it is not uh, going to be maybe as visibly manifest all the time. It's not going to be as physically uh, evident, and sometimes it's going to be um, a person that sits across from you at the table that seems really nice, yeah. mm-hmm. but they're teaching something that is wicked, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're 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 saying, "Why couldn't? I mean, why couldn't we? You know, make our own law? Why do we have to listen to this God of the Old Testament? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, why, you know, why shouldn't we unhitch the Old Testament from the New? Right? They're going to be saying things that are." I mean, they're going to be doing it in a nice way. They're not going to be yeah. necessarily chasing you with torches and uh, trying to uh, cut your head off with a sword. Yeah, know? exactly. The lie has to be con- convincing, right? Or else, you know, like you said, if they're coming threatening, obviously we're going to put up defenses right away. But if it's subtle, like it was in the, in the garden, where Satan was saying, you know, oh, did God really say, like, oh, no, you won't die. Like, yeah. you know, hey, you'll, just, you'll just be like him. You'll know good from evil. And that was the... That was what's alluring. That that's what was alluring about it mm-hmm. to Eve. Um, but I think it's interesting. I really like what he says on forty four and kind of like you know lays this out that Satan didn't kill Eve by stabbing her, but by speaking to her, not with a sword, mm-hmm. but with a sermon. He murders by lies. 
And then talking about the story of Cain, right? If Satan just came in and murdered Cain, that would have been tragic. But that's what we'd expect him to do. But it was, I think it was far worse because he comes in and convinces Cain to kill his brother. And that, I think that has a far, you know, that had, you know, a greater ripple effect with, you know, dis, um, you know, disturbing the family unit, uh, now introducing murder um, of one human murdering another into the world, uh, even though it was already under a curse. But, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't. He gets people to do things that we wouldn't expect him to do. Like, we don't expect a brother to come against his brother and kill him. But he believed the lies. He, he gave into the sin that was crouching at his door. Um, and that, like you said, that's how Satan, that's how Satan works. He, he murders by lies. He murders by convincing people to do sin. Yeah. You know, and therefore further marring the image of God in that person. Yeah, and Rhodes calls that Satan's gospel in this chapter. Yeah. He says Satan is a great evangelist, preaching his own twisted gospel. His weapons are words. You can't force Eve to eat, but like the most depraved killers, he convinces his victims to yeah. commit suicide. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Big wolf. Yeah, then on, on page 46, he continues the thought. He says, now the conflict here will be a war of words. One seed, which is God's seed, will fight with the message of the gospel. But the other, Satan's, will preach any lie that leads people away from God into spiritual death. Yeah. And that's why And that's why the contemporary conversations we have about what is truth, like what is a man, what is a woman, all these things. That people, oh, those are just words. No, ideas have consequences. Yeah. Ideas have huge consequences. And people, when they just dismiss it as, oh, that's just talk or whatever. Yeah. Right? I mean... <laughs> It's like, no, these are ideas. This is a battle for truth. And yes. truth is, what people think is true is going to dictate what they do. Yeah. And it's yeah. going to dictate. That's so good. Yeah. That's so good. And to push that a little bit further, to just remember that everything that exists was made by words. Yeah, exactly. And he so to it. be inconsistent with that, yeah. right, to, to say, well, it's just words. Well, words made the world. Yes. Literally, right? Yeah. I mean, what? Yeah. Uh, you, you can't, Jesus is the word. He is the word. You yeah. can't say just words. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no such thing as just words. Yeah. And this is why we are all bought in on the name and claim it faith uh, yeah. theology. <laughs> <laughs> no, wait, 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 wait. Hang on. Hang on. <laughs> it's not true. Don't listen to me. So this is an important point that he makes. It's on page 45. He said, there's a village in Cornwall mm-hmm. where right in the 19th century, girls were banned from marrying boys from the neighboring village. Why? Because the neighboring village had a high uh, proportion of ginger-haired men. <laughs> a sure sign of dodgy Sorry, Viking eyes. ancestry. Hey. <laughs> Sounds like a solid rule. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, <it's>, Sorry for <laughs> all the redhead listeners out there. Also, I'm joking. My youngest son has red hair, by the way. So hey, Dodgy Viking ancestry I can't fly. right there. <laughs> I There's definitely some Viking ancestry <laughs> at work. Uh, I just thought that was funny. Yeah. I did that. Yeah. I, I have nothing actually. <laughs> well, I mean, he does conclude yeah. that thought really well. The The purpose of him talking about that story is, in the end, he's like, yeah, the purpose for these Cornish people was because they were firmly bought in on the old adage, like father, like son. And he uses that to talk more so about the offspring of, hey, Satan's offspring, they're going to employ the same tactics that their father uh, has been employing. And, and we're called to employ the same tactics that our fathers has put in, which yeah. have a lot to do with speaking truth. Yeah. Yeah, because if people are of, like, kind of like what you said, Chase, people are of their father, the devil, they're going to reflect his image. They're going to reflect their father and what he does and how he thinks. 
um, I think we were talking another time, Michael, and you said like you kind of just end up becoming your parents, whether you realize it or not. <laughs> How true um, is that? Yeah, it's Seriously. it's crazy. Yeah, um, Especially if yeah. there's things that you're like, I never yes, want to be exactly. Like that. Oh I never thought I'd get so fired up about the doors just... being left open yeah. by my kids, the lights being left on, and I do. <laughs> I'm paying air conditioning outside. Yeah, like, it's like, <laughs> Like what happened? Who keeps touching the thermostat? It's like Seriously. those, it's like those <laughs> farmers commercials in real life. Like you're coming, yeah. But but there, again, it's 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 covenant. It's that covenantal idea that you know, for better or for worse, you you tend to just revert to becoming like your. I mean, you're not, you know, I mean, most of us aren't going to be like spitting images of their character and their mannerisms and all that stuff. But it's that's what you saw growing up. That's what you experienced. Um, you're going to revert to that. So again, like using that example for the Cornwall people being like, no, don't, don't even go over there. Um, Get some dodgy Viking. Yeah, the bloodline. dodgy Viking Ugh. bloodline. Like, because they they understood that. Like, okay, those kids aren't dodgy Vikings, but that lineage has been passed down, mm-hmm. right? So. And it's the same, like, again, going back to Jesus and the Pharisees, like, you were of your father the devil. You reflect his image perfectly because you lie, you, you lay on heavy burdens, you you murder um, in your hearts, you lust in your hearts. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so he gets into um, the Noahic covenant, um, the covenant with Noah and, um, you know, Specifically, he uh, talks about this as the covenant of common grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, that because this is a covenant that God made with the world, um, it's not a covenant that's made sim- like with Noah for the whole world, not just for um, any you know one of us. Um, it's not just for a group of us. Um, this actually applies to both the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent in that way um, because God has uh, determined that he's not going to destroy the world again uh, like he did uh, with the flood so let's talk about that I guess Um, I do I want to talk about Noah uh, because I think he's I think he and almost everybody's a little bit wrong about Noah uh, yeah we'll get into I think you and I've talked about this before we probably have Mm -hmm. uh, because I've been thinking about a lot recently but um but let's talk about that generally first, like just this covenant made with Noah and common grace. Yeah, he also kind of toes the line, before even getting into that, he kind of toes the line of um, the theology of total depravity. Um, I'm trying to find where this question starts. I'll just read here, bottom of 46 and 47. Uh, it's not quite as straightforward as that, though, is it? I mean, if you're a believer in God's gospel and therefore one of Eve's offspring rather than one of Satan's, are you always characterized by love for others and complete commitment to believe and tell the truth? And are your non-believing friends really completely evil, just looking for any opportunity to bump you off or deceive you with a malicious lie? Well, of course, the answer to both of those questions is no. Uh, so what's going on? Is John wrong? Did God uh, battle? Did the battle God predicted never materialize? Um, so I guess not just total gravity, and, but also the flip side of that coin. But I just think it's interesting. I think a lot of people reject either one of those theologies because it's not absolutes. Yeah. Um, because it is muddled. Yeah. Yeah, because when we say, like, you know, in, like, reform circles or whatever, when we say total depravity, it's not people are as bad as, bad as, as they could possibly, possibly be. be. Yeah. You know, people are, there's a lot of people that are worse than other people. Um, you know, 
unbelievers that are a lot worse than other unbelievers. Believers that are worse than other believers. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Sometimes even believers are you know act worse <laughs> than unbelievers. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's not as if we're saying total depravity. You, they people are as bad as they could be. Um, it's just that we're completely enslaved to sin. We're, we're completely mm-hmm. removed from the grace of God, the saving grace you of God. You might almost say, like, totally. Yeah, like, totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how about that? Yeah, so sin has is, sin is affected every mm-hmm. area of our life. Um, yeah. But the, you know, the, the hope that there is, I, you know, maybe you wouldn't say hope, but the, the grace that we see that is common, that common grace, is that God limits. Yeah how far evil is going to spread, right? Yeah. How bad it's going to be. Um, if it were purely up to us, we would just, I mean, yeah. we're just going to redo the flood again, yeah. right? Like we're going yeah. to just get things to where, okay, every every intention and thought of the of man is wicked all the time, um, as in the case of leading up to the flood and after the fact. Um, and if God was just going to do the same thing over and over again, if it was up to, well, you just can't be like that. Well, then we just have another flood and another flood yeah. and another flood, right? Yeah, There's, exactly. Um, that would just keep yeah. keep happening. But, I mean, we see it in Romans 1. That's kind of what happens is it's it's God's judgment to, you know, remove his hand more and more, um, his, remove his common grace more and more from people so that they, they go farther and farther into depravity. And we see, you know... Yeah, you know, God, God gives them over now. to their yeah. your, their lusts and their their sinful desires, and that's a form of judgment, right? Is that that hey, you know, if this is if you want to continue this route road, I will continue to remove my common grace. I'll remove it more and more so that you you go more and more into depravity. You go farther and farther into depravity. I mean, obviously, we see that in our common day. You know, I mean, every generation, see, we, we say that, oh, we see it today, but every generation's seen, you know, gross depravity. Every culture's seen gross depravity. So, um, but obviously in our modern day here in America, it's, we just finished the month of June. Like we're, it's kind of, you know, kind of in our face. Like, but that's a removal of common grace that, um, you know, the debates roaring about Christian nationalism right now online, like, hey, like, you know, should we be a Christian nation or not or whatever? And, you know, people are knocking nominal Christianity, but I mean, that's a, maybe that's a totally different conversation. But but you at least see, yeah. in a certain way, that um, there are times when God clearly is restraining sin more, yes. and other times where, yeah, in His judgment, He does allow things to get worse. Yeah, right? like He allows Which sin to spread. You almost wonder if that also is a grace, like to allow yeah. people, like um, in some cases, certainly it has to, like. I'm, I am a special beneficiary of this truth that uh, it is a grace at times for God to withhold the consequences of my actions where I can see that and, and acknowledge God. But there's also certainly times, and every parent knows this, where it makes sense to allow you. It's actually a grace to allow them to see the consequence of their actions. And so I think both those still fall within the broader umbrella that Rhodes is laying out here of common grace being separated into the two Ps, which he calls provision, and this one, which, yeah, we're discussing is prevention. Yeah, and then, of course, before that, he distinguishes between saving grace and common grace. He says, saving grace clearly doesn't extend to all humanity, uh, but common grace does. So the Judases and the Neros and the Hitlers, well, they did experience God's common grace. None, of course, we presume uh, experienced his saving grace. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, the image that I think is best to capture everything that 
you know, the Noahic covenant is, is the sign of the covenant, right? It's the bow in the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and this is, and he points this out, which is really helpful, I think, for modern ears. Because when we hear about the rainbow, you know, we think the rain, like we think of what we see, right? It's about color or it's about something like that. Inclusivity, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Well, <laughs> uh, but when you actually think about the image of a bow, right? What is a bow in the ancient world? What's a bow? Like literally a it's bow, a war like weapon. a bow and arrow. It's a weapon of war. Um, and the idea is that God has hung up his bow, his weapon of war in the sky right. as a reminder that he's not going to war against the whole world. Ever. God. Now he's going to destroy yeah. the seed of the serpent. He's going to destroy the serpent. Right. Um, he's going to win. <laughs> yeah. But he's going to do that not by destroying everything, yeah. right? Uh, by, by taking out everybody except for this one family. Uh, he's he's going to do it uh, in a different way, yeah. um, substantially different way after this. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Noah. Noah. So Noah is, I think, just a fascinating character. I love um, the story of Noah. It's, it's interesting how, I mean, the story of the flood, the story of Noah is, um, it's only a couple of chapters in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And yet it is um, connected. Everywhere. It's yeah. referenced everywhere. It's connected to so many things. Uh, there's so much going on here that uh, we could talk about because it's one of these kind of archetypal images that that teaches us about a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. I just want to talk about the way in which I have slight disagreements with how a lot of people <laughs> read Noah. I was convinced of this by um, having some conversations with one of our elders over the last couple of years about Noah. So we read Noah, um, and um, there, there is a modern impulse with any of the characters in the Old Testament particularly, or really any character in the Bible, to uh, want to really push in on, well, look, they're just as sinful as me. They're just like me. They've yeah. got these sins just like me. Um, and on a certain level, that's true. Like, it's not to say that that's not true. But also, that's not how the New Testament speaks of these characters, right. almost at all, ever. Right. Um, you know, it'll talk about, um, you know, for instance, we read about righteous Lot. Lot was righteous. None of us would read the Old Testament account today yeah. and come out with that conclusion. Yeah. But we're supposed to. And that should, you know, or, you know, when we read about um, David... We want to say, well, look, he's just, I mean, look at all these, yeah. you know, bad things he did, just like I would do, and, you know, he's hes just like me. Also, God said that David is a man after his own heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're unwilling to say that about David, then you're right, you think about um, how, you know, even someone like Samson is held up yeah. um, as a sure. hero of the faith in Hebrews 11 or other places. You know, in other words, I think that we... Um, probably because of a kind of insecurity, mm-hmm. we try to read our insecurities into the text. 100%. Where we're just trying to, in a sense, tear down the righteous, godly men of old so that we can say, well, look, it's okay that my life doesn't reflect the same kind of you know, righteousness that theirs was. Whereas the New Testament uses these men as examples. Right. Hey, you know, wouldn't it be great if we, you know, followed these men in, yeah. in their righteousness right. and recognized that that righteousness was not, it didn't originate with them, right? It was given. It was the favor of God. And so obviously with Noah, you start with, this is all his favor, right? Uh, God's favor on Noah. That's where it begins, right? God God um, looked at Noah in a favorable way. Yeah. And so, and by the way, he says, 
every inclination of every man's heart is wicked. Genesis 6, I think. And so you don't have to um, try to pry into the ways that Noah sinned in order to say he was a sinner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course he was. I mean, yeah, he's included in He's included yeah. in all of humanity. Genesis 6, 5. Yep. Yep. Um, so he talks about how Noah is set up as a kind of new Adam. And yeah, that's, that's crazy. That's kind of true, I think. But I actually think that Noah is actually, in a way, um, put in the position of God himself. Mm-hmm. And I haven't fully worked this out or exactly um, why it does this. Um, but you think about um, what we're told of Noah, right? So after all of this happens, after the Noahic covenant in um, Genesis 9, we're told Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. Who planted a garden originally? Sounds like God and me. It was God. Yeah, God is the one who planted a vineyard. Um, It says he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Now, uh, so we read that Right, and it says drunk. So right away, the the way that this has been translated has predetermined how we're going to judge what he just did. Mm-hmm. However, the the actual Hebrew word for drunk is also the same word that you would use for um, just make glad or uh, make happy. This is, for instance, um, when the psalmist says that God gave wine to gladden the hearts of men. It's the same word. Mm-hmm. Um, so. In other words, this can mean drunkenness. Mm-hmm. It can also just mean the proper use of wine. Um, the, the basically what I would refer to as the Sabbath use of wine. Um, that it is a it is something that God has given for good, for celebration, for uh, making glad the hearts of men. Um, it's a sign of Sabbath rest and victory over one's enemies. Um, there's a lot of things connected to this. And so this is why, by the way, wine is almost always, especially in the New Testament, connected to um, the wedding feast, right? So where, you know, what is Jesus' first miracle? Uh, he turns water into wine at a wedding feast. Uh, and so it's connected to a wedding feast, to celebration, to joy, to, like, uh, it's, it's good, right? It's a good thing. I think that's actually what is happening with Noah, um, that Noah has planted a vineyard, uh, he then enjoys the fruit of the vine. Uh, he partakes in this Sabbath rest of God. And the sin in this story is not actually placed on Noah, like the big right. sin. Yeah. It's, it's placed on son. his son. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which interestingly, uh, you think about uh, you think about the again going back, if Noah is, you know, representative of the place of God. Um, before the fall, right? He plants a vineyard um, just as God planted a garden in Eden. And then it's his son that rebels against him, right? Adam was the son of God. He is, uh, he, and he rebelled mm-hmm. against his father. And so I think that's what's going on, actually. And the, the whole idea of his, you know, uncovering himself. I mean, when you go into your tent to lay down for the night, that's what you do. I slept um, with four layers of sweaters. I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> even in the summer. It's what you do, right? It just, uh, and we just don't, you know, it just, it sounds strange to us, but yeah. he just, he took off his mantle, his robe, and then his son comes and he takes his mantle, his robe. What is that a sign of? It's a sign that his son is trying to take his authority, right? His son is trying to take authority, the authority of his father, which is just what Adam did in the garden. Yeah. Adam tried to take 
God's authority into his own hands to be like God. And so you have a kind of parallel that's going on. So what's actually happening is this is a new Eden with a new fall. Now it's not it's not like Noah is sinless starting out, right? Yeah. So it's all it's just bad. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all a mess at this point. Um, but you do see, I think that brings out a lot of the characteristic of the story um, a lot better. It's also, I just noticed this, don't take this for anything because I don't we know go. what to do with this. I take it. Yeah, Bible conspiracy theory <laughs> or connection that I made the other day. I was just uh, talking about this with someone the other day. Um, so uh, we have. Canaan who falls, right? Canaan is the one. And then the two other sons of the three sons um, cover their father back up. They they come back, which is a hopeful sign, by the way. Like, that's a good sign um, that you have um, the, you know, if we're talking about the covenant conflict of the seed of the woman, you have, uh, you know, originally Cain and Abel, two sons, one kills the other. Here you have three sons, and the one who um, has sinned against his father uh, the other two shame him for it and then try to fix things, basically, yeah. right? Um, I just noticed or thought the other day, you know, it's interesting that we're told in Scripture that Satan fell with one-third of the angels. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that has anything to do with dun, dun, dun. One, one out of three, right? But, like, yeah. just that idea of one out of three mm-hmm. is... It's there. You heard it here There's first, folks. <laughs> oh, man. There's a connection. I don't, don't know say what the connection is or what it means yeah. or if sure. it means anything here. No, that's super interesting. But it's at least interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so that's, you know, as much as I, like, I think Rhodes is on the right track as mm-hmm. far as every, pretty much everything he says. But I do think he falls into the same thing that we all fall into where it's like, well, you know, look, he's just like me. Like, that's why he ha- we, I have to have this passage that says that he did something. Because otherwise, by the way, um, it never outright tells us that Noah sinned. Yeah. It obviously he does because God says all men are completely Genesis six five, including him. Um, but other than that, nothing sinful is mentioned about Noah, and that's actually true of multiple characters, especially in the Book of Genesis, mm-hmm. um, that are held up as kind of you know archetypal right. seed of the woman, right? Yeah. Or, you know the those that God has favor on, those that uh, are are made righteous right. by Him. Yeah. Joseph being another big one. Yeah, Joseph, Joseph another one, right? Yep. You gotta like, you have to really try hard. You have to do some yeah. theological acrobatics you in do. some cases to try to make him look bad. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. Some people might be like, "Whoa, he's kind of arrogant with his." He's like, he's just telling a dream. Right. The Bible doesn't make that seem sinful. It doesn't right. indicate that sinful what, at all. What should he do? Like yeah. this is, you know, people are always <laughs> like, "Oh, he yeah. he told his mom and dad this dream where he would like, how you know, dare they he? would bow down to him." Yeah, he's it's like, what would you do if God gave you a dream? Yeah. Like, just not tell your parents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's doing what you're supposed to do, yeah, you know. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> yeah, that's almost the end of the chapter. One highlight that I had shortly after his um, disparaging no one talking about how horribly is. Just kidding. That's exaggeration. Um, <laughs> he does write, which I appreciate. Middle of fifty, uh, the sign that you are a child of God and yeah. not Satan is not that you are free from sin, yeah. but that you are fighting sin. Yeah, that's uh, a good reminder for all of us who are still fighting with sin. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's good. It's super helpful. Yeah, it's you know some people. I think some people struggle with assurance a lot because hundred percent. You know, I mean, even in my own life, there's things. It's like, why do I keep struggling with that? Why do I keep dealing with that? You know, and again, we should strive every day to kill that sin, right? Like John Owen said, we need to be killing sin, or it'll be killing us. So if you're not, but 
or like Jaunty points out here, it's a sure sign that you're of the spirit. Is not that you're free from sin, because again, we're we're still, you know, Luther, you know, simultaneously justified and a sinner. Like we're still in this kind of in between stage where already not we're justified, but we're still in the flesh. But are we fighting against it? Does it disturb us mm-hmm. when we sin? Um, again, are we making war on, you know, the desires of the flesh? Because we know that they're not in step with the desires of the spirit. They're mm-hmm. not in step with the fruits of the spirit. I think that's a that's a great point that he talks about that like hey mm-hmm. you are a seed of the woman you are an offspring you know you are in Christ if you know your sin disturbs you and you you seek to wage war against it and if you're not seeking to wage war against it like you need to examine yourself yeah, we got an issue. Like, yeah. yeah you need to like you know come like find some brothers or sisters and you know confess and have them come alongside you and help you and you need to fight against it you need to pray you need to be in the word um, but I think this is a great that's a great point that he kind of made there it's like this is a sign this is a sign of the offspring of the woman this is the sign of those who are in Christ it's not that they're sinless but that they're fighting against it that's so good and it's I think it actually ties to this idea that we have to you know look at characters in the Bible that are you know, written about in a way to symbolically represent things that I mean, yeah. are historical and real, but also like play an archetypal role mm-hmm. um, in understanding the Christian faith. And we we have to tear them down in ways, or we have to um, make them more like us, or or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it comes out of the maybe the same kind of idealism that causes people they have to do that because otherwise they think in order to really be righteous in order to really be a christian yeah. like i have to be free of sin right yeah. i have to be mm-hmm. it's this kind of idealism or perfectionism right. um that simply isn't there yeah. i mean it's not you know um we this is this touches so many different areas uh of our life where um, i think probably we just don't trust the grace of god yeah. enough because uh we think oh I need to be just right um, the very fact that I'm at yeah. war yeah. within myself is a problem yeah. um, the very fact that we have like problems in a church where we have to discipline or we have to like you know how come this isn't you know how come this isn't perfect right yeah. how come this isn't right uh, I was talking what do you mean this is a Presbyterian church right? <laughs> oh no <laughs> right? right it should be uh, if everyone would listen to me <laughs> I was talking to Matt the other day, Matt made uh, just a great point that, you know, uh, you know, when you see the churches that the apostles planted yeah. and pastored and shepherded, were they perfect churches? Like when you yeah. read about the churches. Go read First Corinthians. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> they were good enough. Yeah. Um, and so the idea that the that there is battle, there is war against the seed of the servant means something negative no that's yeah. actually the sign that god is at work right mm-hmm. yeah uh, that he has not just given up yeah because otherwise there wouldn't be any more right yeah. against the, the the serpent against your flesh against uh, temptation yeah. it would just be what you're doing all the time right? you're just in it yeah. yeah versus contending for holiness regularly which naturally yeah. if if none of us are holy yet then there there needs to be te- there needs to be this conflict right. yeah. yeah and the, mm-hmm. and the thing is is the goal isn't to get out of the conflict it's it would be like a you know Again, uh, says the Marine. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no. <laughs> Sorry, here we go. Here we I, go. I'm oh, looking for man. a fight all the time. So. No, but like it would be like you know, I was I was in the military, and then like 
it's like if I got if I got dropped into a combat zone, right? And the enemy's engaging us, they're they're maneuvering on a position. And it, I just sat down like behind a berm and plugged my ears and be like, there's no fighting going on, there's no shooting. That's that doesn't change the fact that we're in a conflict. So if as Christians, if we try to avoid conflict, if we try to avoid that feeling of warring within ourselves, that doesn't change the fact that we're in a, in a war. It doesn't change the fact that we're in a spiritual battle. You're just ignoring it, and then you're not actually doing anything to fight against it. Um, you're actually being completely ineffective against, you know, the situation that we're in. Like, we're, 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 we're born rebels. We're part of the, you know, we're in that rebel force. And then as soon as we come to Christ, all of a sudden we just switch sides. But we're still in, you know, in the encampment of the enemy. So now it's like, okay, now we got we to gotta fight on our hands. And for us to just be like, I don't want conflict. Again, it's, we're, we're conflict averse in our, in our society. We just want to be comfortable. We just want to be, everything's just hunky-dory. Like, I'm not, like, not, I don't feel uncomfortable. I don't feel it, you know, I don't feel uneasy. Um, so I'm just going to ignore it. But that doesn't change the fact that you're in a, in a battle. And if you're in a battle and you're ignoring it, you're losing. Because um, you're, you're not doing anything to advance. You're not doing anything to, you know, um, strike blows against the enemy again we're talking enemy of our souls here we're talking about sin we're talking about the devil like you're just you're letting him have his way if you're just sitting down doing nothing trying to ignore it and that doesn't change the fact that we're in the midst of it yeah so good well any last thoughts mm. I think it's uh, good to remember um, just that grace of God and yeah. anytime you see a rainbow anytime you see uh, flag with a rainbow on it. Yeah. Anytime you see Noah Covenant. Well, remember the Noah Covenant. <laughs> yeah. Remember, uh, remember the boat. grace of God that actually God is going to be gracious. Yeah. He's not going to destroy he laid down his the arms. whole world, the whole of humanity as he once did. Yeah. Um, he's laid down that bow. And actually, in fact, he has, though he is still making war, um, that, you know, he, he does this actually by laying himself down. Yeah. Um, now he, you know, uh, Rhodes makes an interesting point at the end. He says, uh, yeah. You know, but how will he do it? Mm. How will he destroy sin without destroying all humankind? Yeah. In fact, God will have to kill all those he mm-hmm. wants to save and purify from sin. Yeah, uh, and he'll get into that. Uh, yeah, as far as what that means. Yeah, how could he possibly be Christ, just and the justifier? That's yeah. right. That's the question, right? How can he be just and the justifier? It's yeah, so good. I think that's really cool how he draws that uh, Christ into that. Like he talked about archetypes and stuff like that. Christ into that picture of Noah of like. Hey, in the in the Noah story, the whole earth, obviously besides Noah and his family, was drowned in the flood. They experienced the wrath of God, and that's what we all deserved, right? All all of us, every single one of us, deserves to be, you know, to be consumed by the waters of a flood. Um, but he says, you know, in the, at the end, in fact, God will have to kill all those He wants to save to purify them from sin, because the wages of sin is death. Um, as it says in Romans 6 but thankfully he will not kill them individually he will do so in covenant union with his son Christ will drown under the flood of God's wrath but rise again from the waters to carry his people into a whole new world like that is awesome again covenant head covenant representation that we don't have to die because Christ died on our behalf yeah let's push into that imagery just really quick before we end because um, the the beauty of understanding this when you think about um, the symbolic nature of baptism um, mm. in the New Testament is tied to the flood, right? Uh, and 
uh, how, why, yeah. what, what is, like, when you look back, what is it? Well, um, it represents the judgment of God, mm-hmm. right? uh, the judgment of God. Uh, but also, it represents God's grace and his salvation, that if you are in the ark, you will be saved through yeah. the waters yeah. of, of God's wrath. Yeah. What is the ark? Who is the ark? Yeah. It is Christ. Yeah. Right? Christ is the ark. Yeah. Um, and so in, in being united to him, you are saved even through the waters yeah. of God's judgment. Yeah, you pass through the waters, right. but you're not consumed and drowned by right. the waters. That's, uh, that's, again, First Peter 3, which really talks on that, which yeah. is, I think, my favorite. Like, whenever people do baptisms, that's my favorite to hear read. Yeah. And uh, verse 18, slightly prefacing, speaking on Noah, for Christ also suffered for once, uh, for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. That is some really good news. And then, of course, later on, uh, salvation by water, <clears throat> baptism corresponding to it. Yeah. Praise God. Yeah. Oh, big fan. Yeah. Big fan. Big fan. <laughs> big fan. Chase is a big, by the way. Love <laughs> substitutionary big, big, big proponent for that. <laughs> As we all should. Yes. Good. Hey, well, uh, next up, we're on chapter four. Um, if you don't have the book yet, you can still order it and uh, read along with us as we work through it. Abraham, a covenant. Here we come.